meat of this. Does anybody know who this is? Any guesses? I'll take anything. Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is the wrong answer, okay? <laughs> anybody else for 10 points? John Wesley's closer, that's very good, that's not right. Whitfield is close, also not right, I'll take one more. No, not Luther. This, John Newton, a round of applause for Sue Double. Really well done. John Newton, um, uh, I'm not sure how many would have heard of him, but I'm really confident that all of us will be familiar with his famous hymn. He wrote a song called Amazing Grace. It's about 250 years old. It's probably the most well-known gospel song that's ever been written. And they reckon that it's hard to tell these things for sure. It is performed annually 10 million times in churches. That's remarkable, isn't it? Um, some of us will know the story that sits behind this hymn as well, but it's, it's a remarkable story. Um, John Newton was a slave trader and a fairly brutal one at that. He sailed on a ship called the Greyhound. The ship's captain said that in a culture where sailors were known for their coarseness and brutal behavior, Newton was one of the most profane men he'd ever met. Newton himself said that he was one of Satan's active undertempters and that a common drunkard was just a petty sinner compared to him. In uh, later years, Newton was uh, saved. He had an encounter with Jesus. Uh, he became a clergyman, uh, and he also wrote a number of hymns, of course, uh, of which Amazing Grace is uh, one of them. When Newton died, he was a Christian. He was a staunch opposer of slavery, and he was nearly blind. Bear that in mind, then, as we listen to this verse written by this scoundrel of a man turned good by the grace of God in his life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, was now, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's a remarkable story of completely undeserved grace and mercy to a completely undeserving man. But it's also not unusual of the way God works. Today's passage of Scripture is a little bit like that. As you know, uh, I've said already, we're working our way through the book of Acts. The conversion of Paul in Acts 9, who later becomes known as Paul, is a remarkable one. Paul uh, becomes one of the most prolific missionaries and apostles, and he's the major contributor to the New Testament. And so this is a significant moment in history. Now, the connection between the story I've told you about John Newton and this one is, of course, that whether you regularly read the Bible or not, uh, most of us would have heard the term a Damascus Road experience. That phrase has made its way into the English language as an idiom, which um, denotes an experience in which someone has a complete and dramatic reversal of direction. Quite possibly, you'll have an important uh, experience or a series of experiences in which a foundational change in ideas takes place. And the story we're going to look at today has been held up as one of the most significant examples of that. Saul on the Damascus Road. It's, it's significant not just for that reason, but because also there's so much to learn in this passage about the character of God and his plan for his people. Now, the backstory here is that Saul is not a nice bloke. In first century uh, Israel, he was a young Jewish leader who, thinking that Christians were just heretics, distorting everything that the Hebrew scriptures set out, on behalf of the Jewish establishment, on behalf of the high priests, he went out to round up and to imprison and to kill Christians all over the Middle East. 
Just think about that for a second. He was a tyrant. The Christian church, Christianity was a, was a brand new thing. In those days, it was known as the way. It's mentioned in the passage we're going to uh, read in just a moment. And Saul was active as a persecutor of the church, more or less around the time of the crucifixion and the death of Christ. Now, we're going to read this story in three parts today, dealing with three phases of Saul's conversion. And I'd like to suggest that as we do that, not just for Saul, but for any person, what we see are the three phases of conversion for us all. And I'd like to suggest that we are saved by grace as we encounter Jesus. We are surrendered to grace as we get to know him. And we are sent by grace. So if you can turn to uh, page 1102 in the Bibles and the pouches in front of you, we're going to read chapter 9 together. So we're going to work our way through the entire chapter, but um, I want us just to read verses 1 to 9 together. The thing I find remarkable about this, if you were here last week, you would have remembered the story that Matt preached about Philip and the Ethiopian. Great story. Philip encounters an Ethiopian. They have a chat. The Ethiopian turns his life to Christ, gets baptized. It's wonderful. It ends well. And uh, the gospel is being spread throughout the region. And it's a little bit like a film where it just now changes direction completely. Verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The last time we came across Saul a few weeks ago is when he's introduced into the Bible when Stephen, who's a devout follower of Christ, one of the first disciples, is stoned to death for his faith. And it says of Saul that as this was happening, he watched approvingly of this execution. He wasn't a friend of the church. He wasn't a nice guy. That first verse again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Think about that. The context and the translation is a little bit more like this. He was breathing in murder. The air around him was murderous. Everything about this guy was white hot with hatred for the church. He was like a war horse, snorting fire before running into battle. Saul could not have been further away from accepting Jesus as the Messiah. So he goes to the high priest out of complete zeal, and he says, essentially, just I've been doing such a good job of persecuting and shutting down Christianity here in Jerusalem. Will you please give me a letter Write me a warrant for the arrest of any Christians that I find in Damascus so that I can round them up and bring them here as, and we can imprison them too. And he gets it. So off he goes to Damascus. Damascus wasn't just down the road. It was about 150 miles away, about six days' journey. This guy was motivated by one thing, the annihilation of this new religion, which seemed to him like a complete affront to Judaism, to the Jewish scriptures, to the Old Testament. 
And then as he's traveling, this amazing experience, it says that a brilliant light appeared to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, we're in Act 9, but in Act 22 and 26, Paul actually tells the story himself. So far, what we've got here is Dr. Luke writing a kind of an eyewitness account of what he's seen and heard. And then when Paul tells it himself, there's something slightly different in the way he tells the story. He doesn't take away any of the, fact, of the facts, but he adds to the kind of the personal sentiment which is going on. When Paul tells it, he says that Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that does change the context of the story a little bit. Now, a goad, come up on the screen, is, um, that's a goad. It's a sort of a cattle prod. If you've ever spent any time around a farm, if you've ever driven any cattle, Chris, I'm sure you've probably seen a, a goad before. Um, it was sharp, and it's meant to kind of poke cattle so that they move in a particular direction. And so if you were an ox and you kicked against it, it would be painful. You wouldn't kick against the goads. You would just do what the master commanded. And this implies that when Jesus encounters Saul on the Damascus Road, a process has already been at work in his life. Hence, what are you doing? I'm prodding you and directing you, and you're kicking against it. So when he encounters Jesus, and Jesus tells him that it's hard for him to kick against the goads, he's essentially saying, Saul, I'm showing you who I am, and you're not seeing it. So let me really show you who I am. I think it's possible that in the experiences in Saul's life up to that point, in the, in the face of Stephen as stone after stone rained down on his face as he was brutally murdered, in the beauty and the love and the unity of the church in Jerusalem, the very church that Saul was persecuting, I think it's possible that in those ways, Jesus was trying to communicate and reveal himself to Saul. And Saul just did not see it. For some, Jesus draws them through their intellect, and uh, you might read something in the Bible or in a social sciences book, or you might see something in the created world, and uh, you realize there's a disconnect between what you feel and what you see. This would be a little bit like the Ethiopian in uh, the sermon last week, um, as Philip went up and uh, the Ethiopian was reading the scriptures and said, I don't understand, and Philip said, well, let me explain this to you, and he in that moment, realizes that Jesus has revealed himself to him and he, he, he's saved. For others, he draws you through matters of the heart, through crisis, through beauty, through personal tragedy sometimes. But sometimes, it just requires an act of sheer power. He didn't engage Saul in that moment through the intellect or the heart. All of those things followed afterwards. But in that moment, what does he do? He, he just simply reveals himself. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then Saul engages intellect and heart and everything else. When Jesus comes to save someone, and it is always, always Jesus who makes the first move, he doesn't force them, he doesn't coerce them. That's not what's going on here. He simply reveals himself. He might reveal himself to you or your friends or family through a book that they're reading some thoughts that maybe start to challenge a worldview or through nature. Why are things so beautiful? Why does staring out to sea make me feel more spiritual? It might be through personal tragedy or hardship, through a conversation that maybe you've had with them as you've told them about your life and told them about Jesus. He woos you like a lover. Why? Because he knows you and he loves you. 
And because we were all created differently, he knows how to best reveal himself to you. And here's the thing. When you, when you see, when you actually see the purpose that you were created for, the very reason for your existence, you can't say no. Why would you say no? Who looks at the very reason for their existence, the deepest yearning of their soul, and says no? Nobody. When I think about how God called me, and I'm sure we've all got stories like this, I came to faith eventually at the age of 24, but some of the ways he worked in my life, just even in my younger years, it just seems incredible. And I want to tell you a couple of them, and I want to inspire you as well for our young people and how God is, even this morning, even now, working in their lives, and how he's working in your lives this morning. When I was two years old, my mother and her then boyfriend uh, took me out for a day to the Ideal Homes exhibition in London. Now, I was two years old, so I was in a pushchair, and uh, my mother said when they arrived at the tube station, she had an overwhelming sense to take me home again. Now, think about that. If you're a parent or if you've ever been a parent, you get ready for the day, you get this child out, you get them ready, you know what that's like. You um, arrive at the tube station, suddenly something from somewhere makes you feel like you've got to take the child home. That's unusual, and you ordinarily wouldn't do it. So she did. She took me back to my grandmother's house, and she left me there, and then her and her boyfriend went off to the Ideal Homes exhibition. Now, this was in 1976, and off she went. Later that day, an IRA bomb went off in Earl's Court. Uh, my mother and her boyfriend were the closest people to the explosion, which was not aimed to kill, it was specifically aimed to maim and to blow people's legs off. It was aimed at pushchair height. I was at home with my grandmother safe. Why did she take me home that day? My mother spent the next few years in and out of hospital, and I lived with my grandmother, who was deeply, deeply steeped in spiritual things. And she taught me much of what I came to understand about the Bible and God's plan for redemption. And then some years passed, and uh, uh, at the time we were, we were living in South Africa, um, I was about eight years old at this point. Now, um, in those days, my parents just did not let me go outside of the house. It was just too dangerous. So it was school and home, and that was it. And then randomly, one day, a, a friend of mine, I'm eight years old, says to me, do you want to go out on Friday night with, some group, with a group of guys? And so I thought, there's not even really much point in asking my parents, but I asked them anyway, and they said, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it was completely random that they would let me go. So Friday night comes, and this flatbed truck shows up outside my house with um, a load of kids in the back of this truck. And uh, I get in the, in the truck, I have no idea where we're going, and off we go, and we end up in the middle of kind of like, almost like jungle, just nowhere. And um, as we arrive, there's this huge circus big top with loud music playing from it. And I find myself in the middle of a huge Christian revival meeting. Now, the details of that evening are, are hazy to me, but as best as I can, I recall that night hearing the gospel, being prayed for, being prophesied over. I think I might even have been baptized. It was all uh, kind of a... I've, I've no idea. But on that one occasion in my young childhood that my parents let me out, it was to that... And for the next 20 years, there's story after story like that. God gently prodding me, calling me, protecting me, shaping me. And also in that 20 years, my story is one of rebellion and sin and occult meddling. And then at 24 years old, when my business career was at a high, I was flush with money and I had a strong philosophy of what I wanted to get from life. I was well on track <clears throat> in one moment, randomly finding myself in a place where I was listening to a Christian speaker from, from America, Jesus encountered me, and he said, no more kicking against the goads. And in that time, as he revealed himself to me, I started to see him for who he was. 
and everything changed. And as I realized that this is what I'd been created for, and I've never looked back since. I'm sure we've all got stories like this of Jesus encountering you, chasing you down, wooing you, pursuing you. I wasn't a wishy-washy person. I had some strong opinions of what life was all about. I don't think there's anybody in history who had more of a clear conviction of what they believed than Saul as he traveled the road to Damascus. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was a highly educated man. He was deeply steeped in the word. And in both cases, both for Saul and me, a revelation of Jesus changed everything in a moment. Nobody's too far. Nobody's too clever. Nobody's too rich. Nobody's too bad or too damaged or too oblivious that Jesus can't reach in and save them. All they need is a revelation of who he is, a revelation of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's, a, there's an account in the Gospels of a detachment of Roman soldiers who come to arrest Jesus the night before his arrest. Most of you would have read this. You know, it's the story where uh, Peter grabs a sword and slices off um, one of the soldiers' ears trying to defend Jesus. Now, this next part of the story is often overlooked because, frankly, getting your ear sliced off is just more exciting <laughs> in Scripture. But um, the soldiers enter the garden, it says, this detachment of soldiers where Jesus is praying with his disciples. And they say, which one of you is Jesus? It says in John 18, 5, Jesus said, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. An entire detachment of Roman soldiers and religious officials fall to the ground. It's, it's odd, isn't it? But it's actually quite a normal response to a revelation of God. Isaiah saw God and he fell to the ground. Woe is me, he said. Moses saw God in a burning bush and he hid himself because he was afraid. Saul saw Jesus on the road and he fell off his horse and was blinded. And on that day, he stopped kicking against the goads. Nobody's beyond the grace of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, or if you're here this morning and you do know him, but you're not entirely convinced of his plan for you, or that he loves you, or that he deeply desires communion and relationship with you, then ask yourself this. Why on earth are you here this morning? How on earth did you get here? Maybe you came because a spouse dragged you here. Maybe you're here because this is what you do on Sundays. It's become so routine that it's actually more ritual than relationship. Maybe you're here because you really like the group of friends you've made in church. Maybe you're here because you want to expose your kids to the teachings of the church so that they grow up moral. Here's the reality. You're here this morning because God has called you here. And as I'm talking, and as we're singing our songs, and as we're looking at his word, he's revealing himself to you because he loves you, and he deeply desires, as any healthy parent would, a response of love towards him and his word. And how do I know he loves you? Look at what he says to Saul. He says, it's me you're persecuting. Saul isn't persecuting Jesus, he's persecuting Christians. But Jesus, in that statement, identifies himself so closely with his people that he says, if you persecute one of them, you persecute me. Every stone that rained down on Stephen's face, every time a Christian was beaten or imprisoned, Jesus felt it. Which is to say that every moment of pain in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, he feels it. And he understands. And he's so in love with you. And he so desires to be wrapped up in your world that in order to do that, he gave his life up for you. At any point, he could have said, that's enough. I'm not really the Messiah. I don't really want to go to the cross. But instead, he said this. Righteous Father, 
Though the world does not know you, I know you. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. Jesus is in you this morning. And then he displayed what the love of a perfect father is like by taking the full force of our rebellion and our denial and exhibiting the perfect measure of God's justice and mercy by dying for you. We are saved by grace. Slightly quicker now. Let's, uh, let's see how the story continues. Pick up your Bibles again. We're going to read now from verse 10 to 19. And what I want us to look at here is a life that is surrendered to grace. Number, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Remember now, um, Saul has he's been blinded. He's seen Jesus. He's been led to this house in Damascus, stumbles in. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What we see here in these few short verses are two stories of complete surrender to Jesus. Now again, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, then this is particularly relevant for you. But even if you do, our walk with Christ, our union with him in terms of his power to work in your life boils down to this. In every situation, surrender to him. The, the, the word surrender in recent history has negative connotations. Surrender is often associated with armies throwing down their weapons and capitulating to advancing enemies or maybe to a boxer who's run out of fights, run out of steam, knows his his fight's over. But the kind of surrender we see here and the kind of surrender that honors Jesus is an active surrender. It's not a passive thing. It's a decision, sometimes daily, to hand over control of your life to his better ways. Now, of course, if that sounds offensive to you, then I'm asking you to remember that what I'm asking you to believe is what it says in God's word, that he loves you and he has the best for you and he is perfect in knowing what's right for you. And so surrender in that sense is surrender to someone who knows everything you need before you know it. And at times that will feel great, and at times that will feel tough. Look again what it says in verse 11. Following this dramatic experience for Saul, what does he do? He, he doesn't eat or drink anything. And at the end of verse 11, he was praying, possibly fasting, deeply introspective, trying to make sense of his situation, and crucially, his seeking God. Praying is an act of surrender. And what's interesting here is that Saul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, but it's in the house on Straight Street that he's actually saved. And so I just want to put this out there this morning. It's, it's quite possible, if you're a follower, that you've encountered Christ, but you're not fully saved in all your ways. 
It's quite possible to have had a Damascus Road experience, but not to have had the straight street conversion. And then God calls out to this man, Ananias. God appears to him and says, go to Saul and pray for him. Remember, all that Ananias knows of Saul is that the air around him is alive with murder for someone like Ananias. So he's, he's suitably scared of doing this. But God tells him to go nonetheless, and he does it. Now, I think there's a helpful diagnostic tool for us here. As I was reading this pa- passage, it caused me to ask if I would have gone to pray for Saul if God had asked me. Would I have had the faith to hear his voice and trust him? Would you? Jesus' last command before his ascension was, go and tell people about me. Ananias challenges me, and he should challenge you, because when God tells him to go to probably the most dangerous man in the world for him at that time, he goes. He tells me about Jesus, and he prays for him. With fear and trembling, he surrenders to the will of God. No kicking against the goads, no trying to advise God's, God, just a willing foot soldier surrendering to the master. And of course, you can't overlook this remarkable statement from Jesus as he talks to Ananias in verse 15. This man, Saul, the murderer, the person who's taking the lead on the world stage at shutting down the church, that man, he is my chosen disciple to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and the people of Israel. In other words, everybody. My chosen instrument. Say what? Saul hates the church. He probably hates Jesus. He loves God, he's full of zeal for God and his word, but Jesus is just not the king of his life in any sense. And yet, from the beginning of time, Jesus had purposed that Saul would be the leading voice, the main missionary to the Gentiles, the unsaved world in that generation, and to us now. Saul was trained by the most learned rabbi in Jerusalem. He knew in detail and would have memorized much of the Old Testament and its 300 plus prophecies about the coming Messiah. And he missed every one of them until he saw Jesus. And then he realized that this man, risen from the dead, fulfilled every single one of these prophecies. What does he do in response? He surrenders, he prays, he gets baptized. Later on in his life, Um, Paul says something which I think seems to sum up his whole life and his whole ministry, and for me is one of the most beautiful statements of surrender in all of Scripture. It's what I pray for us all today. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This man says to his Hebrew contemporaries, remember he he was raised as a deeply Jewish man, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Imagine how offensive that would have been and how shocking. He grew up in Tarsus, which was a Greek city prized for its um, understanding of culture and poetry and modern thinking. He said, and, and, and one of the key facets of Greek thinking, which we still um, have within us today, is this kind of prizing of the person, of the me, of the ego. It's important that the world revolves around me. He says, I no longer live. And then he perfectly merges them together into this new Christian worldview. But Christ lives in me. Can you say this morning that in spite of your upbringing, your wealth, your health, your education, that you've been crucified with Christ and that you no longer live? You surrender to his ways and now he lives in you. And as a result, you'll live for him fully. Saul was, as we all must be, saved by grace and surrendered by grace, surrendered to grace. And as we see next, um, was sent by grace. Let's, uh, let's read from verse 20 down to verse 30. 
Saul has regained his strength now. It says, Saul spent, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I'd love to know what that means. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the, remember, the Hellenistic Jews are the ones who killed Stephen as well. But they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. One of the um, kind of the fallacies or misconceptions which um, often arises from the story is that Saul had this moment where he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, he's converted in a moment, and then he goes out into all the earth and does all the great things we then go on to read about him. But that, that's actually not true, because um, elsewhere in Scripture, it says that the reality is that immediately after this episode, he actually went to Arabia for three years to be alone with God. And then he had a further decade back in his hometown of Tarsus. It was actually fully 13 years before he truly began what Jesus had called him to on that day on the Damascus Road. 13 years. The wartime German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this, there is meaning in every journey that is unknown to the traveler. Saul was raised in one of the finest university towns in the world. He was marinated in Greek culture and poetry and art and modern thought. In that place, he was raised as a Jew with all its traditions and depth of religious observations. He was trained in Jerusalem under an expert thinker. He was saved en route to a mass imprisonment of the people of Christ. He was sent out to Arabia for some unknown reason and then back to to Tarsus for a decade before then, only then, being released into what Jesus had called him to. What's, What's your journey been? What's your journey now? How many times have you called out to God, why? Every experience in Saul's life prepared him and shaped him for what God had in mind for him, to be the most effective instrument possible to make Jesus known. And there's more like him in here as well. Abraham is the promised father of God's people. He had his first son aged 100 Moses was 80 years old, we forget this, before he uh, confronts Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Joseph, sold into slavery, imprisoned, forgotten in a dungeon, before he came into all that God had for him. Even Jesus had 18 years as a carpenter. What thing is the master doing in your life now? And how will that be shaping you day by day to tell of him so that he's made known into the ends of the earth in every generation? Because here's the thing, Gateway. There has never been a Christian born in history who isn't called to tell others about Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ today, you, not the evangelism team, not the guys running the 321 course or Alpha, 
but you are called to go into our community and tell about Jesus. And as a whole, as a body, we are meant to live in such love and unity with each other so as to demonstrate to Paul what the Jerusalem church had demonstrated to Paul such that the most unlikely candidate for salvation in the whole Middle East was gloriously saved. And then Paul is sent to some of the most dangerous places and dangerous cities in the world. And he does it. And he does it faithfully. Most of us are just called to Sainsbury's. We need to be ready to be sent. When the person at the checkout in the supermarket complains that they have dodgy elbows or your kids are stressed at school or your neighbor has just lost a loved one, we say things that encourage them and then we tell them about the savior who fixes broken bodies and who calms storms and who comforts the lost and hurting. If you are a Christian, you are saved by grace. You are surrendered to grace and you're sent by grace. What, that's what Saul learned for, uh, on the road to Damascus for three years in Arabia and 10 more in Damascus. And all the while in that 13 years, before even taking one step on his big missionary journeys, which would define his life and influence us so much, it says that as he went, in verse 20, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, long before his first missionary journey. Verse 22, he baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 28, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. And then verse 31, just to finish off this chapter, this is what the book of Acts is all about. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. All it ultimately took for Jesus to achieve this was one man. He revealed himself to one man, one man surrendered and sent. That same man who persecuted and scattered the church is saved, evangelizes the region, and the church grows. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. There's, um, there's a lot to take away from this chapter, but there's three things in particular that I want us to just dwell on for a moment and be encouraged by and consider. Number one. God is always at work in the world. This story starts with things not looking great for the church if you're a Christian. It might seem that way to you now. Brexit, deal or no deal, hurricanes, Kim Jong-un with his finger over the big red missile button, secularism. Saul was worse than all of these things. And he encountered God's surprising grace. God is always moving things towards an end. No person and no situation is beyond his grace. And he's good. And that's good news. Our response must be to have faith in what he's doing and in his ability to work all things together for the good of those who love him. He's got it under control. Stand firm this morning. Have faith. Number two, God is always at work in you. Trust what he's doing. Look at what he was doing in the life of Saul for the sake of the church. When he saved Saul... He had you in mind because he loves what he's made. Are you worried? Are you under pressure? Are you struggling in your faith? Are you harboring a dark secret? He knows. No one is beyond the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Look at what he built in Saul's life from Tarsus to Damascus, back to Tarsus. Our response to this should be to follow where the master leads. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you're like Saul. Maybe you're well-educated, comfortable, think you've got it all sorted. What we see in the life of Saul is that this incredibly competent, intelligent man had it all wrong. He was as good 
as blind before God actually blinded him. But it was by God's grace that he was brought back into glorious light. And he's offering you the same thing this morning. John Newton, I was blind, but now I see. And then finally, God is always at work in the church. All of this was done to serve this end, that the gospel might be spread, that people would be called out, and that a community of Christ followers would be established. It's, it's really easy nowadays to lament the sidelining of the church in this day and age. It was, it was seldom more sidelined than while Saul was persecuting it. And it's still here 2,000 years later. And you know what? It'll still be here in 2,000 years' time or until Jesus returns. Why? Because we have a Savior. And that Savior has promised to build the church. Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the church. Who did Jesus say he was persecuting? Jesus. In every situation... He has won your freedom, he's won victory for the church, and he's won victory for himself for all of eternity. Why on earth would you not choose him in everything? If you're a Christian, choose him above all your circumstances. If you're not, and you think there's any hint of truth in what I've said today, if he can save the darkest heart, if he can pour out his love into their heart, if he can give purpose and meaning to your existence, and he can help you find your highest potential and your very reason for being, today might be the day that you surrender to him, that you are gloriously saved. To everyone in this room, there's a choice here, and its implications are the difference between freedom, purpose, liberty on the one hand, and disconnection and death on the other. In every situation, choose Jesus. Choose his amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you that whether or not this morning we are aware of it in our minds or our hearts, there is a problem with humanity. We have been distanced from our maker through our rebellion. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have provided the solution by giving yourself up on a cross, by shedding your blood for us, and by dragging us and reconciling us to the Father who loves us, and that now it's not about what we do, but it's about what you have done. And so, King Jesus, this morning we worship you and we thank you. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here that we might take another step forward this morning and be able to say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Lord, be glorified, be lifted up, be magnified. Thank you for your saving, amazing grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes.